All right. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm doing fabulously. Thanks for asking. Um, one of the, I want to admit to you guys, one of the problems I have, so in, in all the years, the, the 10 years that I've been a pastor at Jubilee Fellowship, the five years that I was a campus pastor, I got to preach on an average of once a year. Once a year. And so in, since we opened DCC on January 1st, I've already now surpassed my entire last 10 years of preaching experience, right? So, yeah. One of the things I still struggle with, though, and, and I struggle all the time, and I'm trying to get better at it, is when God downloads things to me, and he does all throughout the week because I'm constantly seeking his heart, and what, Lord, what do you want me to share with the people, what do you want for this weekend service? And I try and lift it all up to him. But the problem is this, is that I'm not very discerning. When he downloads a bucket full or a wheelbarrow full to me sometimes, I feel like I need to share all of it with all of you this weekend. Okay, so it can, I know it can feel like, um, you know, force feeding you with a fire hose sometimes to try and get all that information in. I will try and relax and realize that I'm going to be here again next weekend. And so there might be... There might be some things that I'll like, okay, that's not for now. I'll, I'll postpone that. So with that being said, I've got so much that I want to share with you guys that uh, I, I am excited about doing it. One of the things that I want to talk about is, uh, is traditions. Okay, now this isn't part of the message. This is something that I want to just let you know we're going to be doing. As we, as we go throughout the year, there are so many Christian holidays uh, traditions and things that, that we don't discuss very much. So there are a lot of people who have been Christians their whole life, and they don't understand a lot of these Christian holidays. And then to take it a step further, there are a lot of Jewish holidays that are very, very significant for us and our roots. And, and most people, many people, I'll just say, don't have any idea what those are or why they're important. So one of the things I want to do as we move through the year is I want to kind of just take a second. We're not going to do like an entire teaching always, maybe if it's appropriate, but just kind of touch base on what some of these traditions are so that when you hear about them, you'll have at least a basic understanding, right? And here's what I want to point out, the word tradition, okay? Many of these things are specifically listed in Scripture. Many of them are not. Many of them are traditions that different churches have developed over the centuries, over time, and they've become just something that we do. So I don't want any arguments over, well, that tradition started here and started here. My goal is not to cause division by saying, hey, we're going to do this, but we don't believe in that. It's not about that, okay? We are, if we call Christ our Lord and Savior and a church glorifies him and his name, then we're all on the same team right? We might have different ideas of how we do certain things. Some, some churches like to add on a whole bunch of rules. Some churches don't like to have a whole bunch of rules. And everybody in between, okay? But these are things that can bring us together. They shouldn't be things that are a dividing point. They should be things that can bring us together. And so on that, hey guys, could you start the timer just so I don't uh, lose track? There we go. I got a bonus couple minutes. All right, you guys are, all right. So one of the things I want to talk about is, is obviously leading up to Easter. Easter is, is the, if you're a Christian, Easter is the most significant holiday that we can have, okay? But it's much, much more than a holiday. There are all sorts of things that lead up to it that are incredibly significant that, for the most part, 
modern churches wait until Easter weekend. Okay, and on Easter weekend, they try and cram in all these things, and we try and make that weekend significant all in just one time. I think it's much more significant than that, and the events that lead up to it should be something where we're preparing our hearts as we go along uh, to, to really understand the gravity of what happened. We've all seen the movies, Passion of the Christ and things like that, and they make it, uh, it's hard to, to miss the gravity of the situation, but there's so much more significance that, I, that happens, right? So one of the things I want to do is just touch base on some things that starting this week are a lead up to Easter, okay? So one of the things I want to start with is Tuesday. Has anybody here ever heard of Fat Tuesday? Okay, anybody ever heard of Mardi Gras? Anybody ever heard of Shrove Tuesday? Crickets on that one, right? Guess what? They're all the same day. They're all Tuesday, and they're all essentially for the same reason, although they've been, different parts of it have been kind of, Mardi Gras, is, they really highlight the party and celebration part of it, right? Shrove Tuesday is a day of, of essentially of repentance um, and, and seeking uh, absolution, for sins, okay? And then Fat Tuesday, Fat Tuesday is the day that, that leads up to Mardi Gras. Essentially, it's the last opportunity to feast, okay? Thus the name, I think fat is where that comes from. Let's all get fat on Tuesday. So, but what it is, is, is it's the beginning of Lent. Lent starts on Wednesday. Another name for Wednesday, the first day of, of Lent, is Ash Wednesday. Anybody ever heard of Ash Wednesday? Okay. Anybody have any idea what the significance of Ash Wednesday is? Okay. Again, most of us don't. Many of us do, okay, but a lot of us don't. And here, so here's what I want to tell you. First of all, Lent. Let me, let me back up a little bit and explain what Lent is. Okay. You've, you've probably at least heard the term Lent if you're not familiar with it. Lent is essentially the 40-day period leading up to Easter, okay, 40 days leading up to Easter. Now, different churches, specifically the Catholic Church, because they're, they've been kind of the, the champions of, of the Lent concept and the Lent celebrations, they've had different calendars that say, okay, it's 40 days, and then they revised it and said, okay, it's 40 days, but we don't count Sundays, and then there's different calendars and different traditions. So, that being said, if you count backwards, Lent starts on Wednesday, Okay, and it's different each year, but it starts, it starts on Wednesday. That's the 40 days leading up to Easter. And the significance of that is it symbolizes the time that Jesus was, was wandering the desert, essentially being tempted by the devil. He was fasting, okay, and he was seeking God's heart, and he was preparing his heart for what was to come in his life and in his ministry. And so that 40 days, we talk about 40 days. We did 40 days of prayer here. In fact, we're in the middle of it. 40 days is a very significant biblical number and biblical concept, but that's what Lent represents, okay? It's not get hung up on how many days it is exactly, but it's 40 days, give or take, prior to Easter to where we can be intentional about focusing our minds on Jesus, on what he did. It's a time of self-examination, okay? And if you've heard, if you've heard um, Catholics talk, specifically Catholics, but there are other denominations that... that do this too. Um, you're giving up something for Lent. Okay, who's heard that? I'm giving up. Uh, I'm giving up Brussels sprouts for Lent. I'm giving up 
You notice it's never like, it's rarely, I'm giving up coffee. I'm giving up my favorite TV show. I mean, it's, it's always something that you could do without anyway, right? But it's not about giving up something. It's about recognizing those things that you have placed at a higher significance in your life than our Lord Jesus. Okay, the Bible says we shouldn't worship idols. And so anything that we place above, let's say, for example, hey, it's time to go to church, but... There's a game on. I'm going to watch the game. Okay, now I'm not pointing fingers and saying, hey, if you made that decision, you're evil. And I, it's not about that. It's about self-examination. What in my life, your life individually, have I placed above my Lord and Savior Jesus? And that is going to be different for everyone. And so it's a time of just examining in your life, where are you at with those things? What have you placed in above significance? And then it's a time to willingly set that aside in order to focus on Jesus and what he did for us. So it's not for me or anybody else to tell you, number one, whether you should participate in Lent or not, or specifically what you should give up or that you should give up anything. But it is a time of focus and self-examination. Where, where am I? Where's my heart? And that's what it's about. So that's the start of Lent. Ash Wednesday is the official beginning, the kickoff of that, and thus the Fat Tuesday where, hey, let's feast because now we're going to be fasting for 40 days. Okay, that's, that's the idea behind it. So Ash Wednesday is coming up. Ash Wednesday is actually this Wednesday, and it falls on Valentine's Day this year. St. Valentine's is a whole other story that I can get into some other time. It's an interesting story, but it happens to fall on that day. And so this Wednesday, what we are going to do as a church, from now on, as I said, we're going we're gonna to elevate the significance of some of these holidays and some of these significant dates that come up. We are actually partnering with another church. Um, they're called Trailhead Church. Now, some of you know this, and some of you don't know this. On Sunday afternoons, we have, for the last couple of years, we have opened up our building and allowed another church, Trailhead Church, to come in here and have their services in here. And so... <clears throat> we've been sharing the blessing that God has given us with another church. So they're a little bit smaller than we are. They're Mennonites, okay? Um, now, Mennonites aren't, aren't uh, Amish, if that's what you have in your mind sometimes. Some strict sects kind of uh, kind of uh, drift that way, but they're, they're very much a modern church. They are a Bible-believing and, and a Christ-elevating church. That's what they do, okay? And they're, they're very, very life-giving. We are going to, though, partner with them on this Wednesday, and we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. Okay? The reason we're partnering with them is because they've done this for years. It's part of their tradition. And so they have invited us, any one of us who wants to come. Now, I'm going to be there serving communion. I'll be a part of the service that they do. It's Wednesday at 5 o'clock, okay? 5 p.m. right here. Okay? That's when it will be, and I understand it's during work, and it's kind of hard. Now, I'm not saying I want all of us to come. I'm not saying, hey, if this is a curiosity to you, I want you to come and just see how they do it. If God puts this on your heart and says, hey, this is a good time for you to just focus on what's coming up, focus on what Jesus did, and this is a great time to maybe examine your heart, maybe there's a little bit of repentance there, okay? So the significance of the ashes on Ash Wednesday, what this is is, is that on Palm Sunday, which is right before... It was leading up to Easter, right? That start of Holy Week when Jesus rode into town on the donkey. They put the palm fronds down. So they have that ceremony 
uh, on Palm Sunday. They take those palm fronds. This is traditionally, okay? They take those palm fronds and they burn them. They burn them to ash. And they save those ashes for the following year. And then the following year, those are the ashes that they use on, palms, uh, on uh, Ash Wednesday to mark the foreheads. Okay, you've probably seen that, people walking around town with the mark on the foreheads. Okay? It's a sign of repentance is what it is. And the Bible talks all over about repentance and about ashes and, and torn clothing and things like that, sackcloth and ashes, being a sign of a repentant heart. Okay? And so that's what this is about. This is about the service on Wednesday, the Ash Wednesday service, is about just focusing on taking those things that we have elevated, we repent of them, and we set them aside. And we set them aside, at, hopefully forever, if it's something that we've elevated, but at least we are focusing on that 40-day period leading up, leading up to Easter. Okay? Now, I want to say this because there are people already who are thinking, nah, I don't know about that Ash Wednesday. This is a tradition, Okay, this isn't biblical. This is not something that the Bible says you should do this. In fact, I'll be honest with you, the Bible in the New Testament, if anything, says you shouldn't do this. Okay, now here's what I mean by that. It says, don't go around and make a show of being repentant. Don't tear your clothes and wear rags and put ashes on your forehead and not shower and say, oh, I'm so repentant. Don't make a show of it. That's not what you're supposed to do. Okay, so if it's in your heart, I'm going to get the ashes on my forehead, and I'm going to walk around all night going, check this out, look how repentant I am. Okay, I don't want to make light of it, but that's, that's not the heart behind this. Okay, it's, a, it's like baptism, it's an expression of something that's happening in your heart. So if you want to join us for that, if you want to join us in Trailhead and do a kind of a combined thing, you are more than welcome to come. You don't need to sign up or anything, just come, it's 5 o'clock on Wednesday. So that's the significance of that leading up to it. Um, and I kind of told you about my misgivings. It, again, this is, not a, this is not a time where we come and get in arguments with them, whether we should or whether we shouldn't do this. This is a tradition. And it's a tradition that is not anti-biblical, but it's not listed in the Bible. And so that's where we as a church want to focus. But traditions can be wonderful things to help focus us in the right direction. And then to bring us together saying, hey, we're all, we're all on the same team. Right? So that's what that's about. So I don't want to spend any more time on that. If you have any questions about that, ask us, but it is an open invitation. One other thing that you can mark your calendars for uh, in, way in advance is right before Easter, we are again going to be partnering with Trailhead to do a Good Friday service. Okay? We haven't done Good Friday services in Jubilee for I don't think we ever have, um, but certainly not in a long time. And so we're again, we're going to partner with them and do a Good Friday service. I'll tell you more about that as it comes, but if you want to be a part of that, uh, you can join us for that. So let's jump into the message. Last night I took up a little over half of our time in explaining that part of it and rushed through the rest of the message. So I feel like I'm way ahead of the game right now, especially with my bonus minutes. So who knows what God is going to do with this. I, I, think, I think he's, uh, I'm just excited to share this with you. So last week, if you missed last week's message where we kicked off Stations of the Cross, I want to uh, just encourage you to go to our website, uh, which is discovercommunity.church, and you can listen to last week's message. You can grab it right through there, or you can podcast it on Google Play or iTunes and listen to the kickoff of the message. I don't want to go back and like recreate the entire scene of what happened, but what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about Stations of the Cross 
eight stations of the cross. You may have heard that there's 14 or 15 or more different, again, different traditions have different numbers of stations. There are eight that are expressly, explicitly listed in the Word of God, in the Bible. And so those are the ones that I'm actually going to focus on. It doesn't discount the other ones, but these are the ones that we're going to be teaching on. Okay, So um, what we're going to talk about this week is station number two. Um, And station number two is as it sounds, the second station in the walk on the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa is an actual avenue. It's an actual pathway. It's not just one street. It's, it's a pathway that Jesus took from Pilate's Praetorium, where he was judged, all the way up to Golgotha, where he was crucified. Okay, That path they call the Via Dolorosa, and it actually means uh, the sorrowful way. Okay, That's what it means. And there are points along here where significant things happened. Now, the entire process is obviously very significant, but significant things happened along the way, and they are commemorated by these little plaques right up here that are a fairly recent addition, but these plaques all have numbers. You can't really see it in this picture, but that's a number two, and number two, that's, that's what we're going to talk about this week. Now, the reason I show you this picture is because if you go to Israel, okay, and I'm hoping, Gabe and I have been talking about this, maybe next year we'll be able to run a DCC Israel trip, and as a group, many of us can go, so we're going to be working on that, but if you've ever been there, or if you go, you'll realize one thing very quickly, this is a real place, and these things I've been reading about in the Bible really happened, and Jesus stood right here, and he endured these things, and so you look at this picture, this is where Jesus actually accepted his cross, Okay, that's where they laid the beam on him, and he actually had to carry his own cross after he had been beaten, after he had been whipped, and he had to carry it himself. This is the point where he accepted it. But I want you to see, now, there have been facelifts and different things. I don't think some of the power lines were there and some of the you know, street lights were there at that time. But this is what the street looked like. These cobblestones, uh, there's been obviously repair, but many of them, are the same ones. It's the same path that Jesus himself walked on. This isn't theory. This isn't a story about somebody who may or may not have existed. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, endured these things. Okay, He was a real man. He was all God, but he was all flesh on this earth, and he felt pain, and he felt doubt sometimes, and he questioned, is there another way that we can do this? He went through the same kinds of emotions that we went through. He felt the same kind of pain that we would feel going through this kind of a thing. The difference is how he handled it, and that's why he is our example of how we should live our lives. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. So this is what uh, station number two of the Via Dolorosa looks like. So where we are, um, just the very last segment, Jesus has been judged, Pilate has condemned him, uh, and then in Mark 15, 15, Pilate actually turns Jesus over to them, okay, to be, to be crucified. So then we go forward. Now the station we're going to, the, the scripture we're going to talk about is John chapter 19, verse 17. If you get the chance, I would encourage all of you to read the entirety of John chapter 19. It is a great account from start to finish of what Jesus went through here, okay? But this is the part that we're going to pick out. John 19, 17 could get that up there. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Okay, 
That's the, check, the portion of Scripture. But before we talk about that, I want to actually back up a step. Just a little bit before this, this is John 18, 36. If we can throw that up there, John 18, 36. This is Jesus. This is Pilate questioning Jesus. Okay? He's saying, who, who are you? Are you king of the Jews? Okay? And, and Jesus answers this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Here's what's significant about that. Jesus taught extensively about authority and about submission to authority. Jesus was not in rebellion at this time. They asked him if he was king of the Jews, and and he says, it is as you say. It's as you say, yes, I am king of the Jews, but not in the way that you mean it. Because what traditionally at that time, and, and to this day, I suppose, kings fought for their kingdoms. Kings earned their kingdoms, sometimes by lineage, but they had to fight for it. They had to fight and defend it and, and to keep it against people who would want to come and try and take it away. Sometimes they did it by, by intrigue and espionage and murder, and sometimes it was just an army and they marched in. Kingdoms weren't won or kept passively. So Jesus is not in rebellion here because, yes, he is king, but he's not king on this earth. He is king in an entirely different realm, and so he is not exhibiting any sort of rebellion here when he says it is as you say. He submits fully to Pilate and his authority. He knows what's coming, but he submits himself to Pilate's authority knowing full well that he is king, but not in this realm. It's important to know that he's not in rebellion at this time. (coughs) The other thing that I think is important to know, and God just pointed this out to me, is that when the Lord orchestrates the way that things happen, and he uses people to accomplish different things, in this specific instance, he used the Jews, the Jews... Through, through the Sanhedrin and through Caiaphas, they judged Jesus. And they, although they didn't have the authority to condemn him, they condemned him and they beat him and they, and they whipped him. And then they brought him to Pilate for his judgment. In this instance, if you look at it, we had the Jews you know, c- condemning Jesus to death. And then we had the Gentiles in the form of Pilate actually being the one to to actually be the one to, to institute that, right? So the thing that I think is significant about that is that we spend a lot of time pointing back and forth the Jews, say, hey, you, you killed Jesus, and you know, a lot of Christians say the Jews killed Jesus, and like, who, who really killed Jesus was the Romans and, and Gentiles. That's who most of us are, okay? So we're actually the ones that did it. We had the choice, and you can tell if you read through Scripture, Pilate was very reluctant to actually follow through and and do this. But he did it because his hands were kind of tied. He said, that is what the law says, and and the Jews were chanting, crucify. So he actually went through, and he did it. But I think it is important to know that we all shared in the death and suffering of Jesus. It wasn't just one or the other. So then fast-forwarding now, John 19, verses 10 and 11. I know this is a lot of scripture. John 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, he's questioning him and Jesus won't answer. Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and that I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. 
For this reason, he who delivered to me to you has the greatest sin. Now, we don't know when he says, he who delivered me to you. We don't know if he's talking about Judas or if he's talking about Caiaphas, the high priest. We don't know who he's actually talking about there. But what he is talking about is an important concept of a deliberate act. Okay? It was deliberate on the point of the high priest. It was deliberate on the point of Judas to betray Jesus and to turn him in. I'm going to talk in a second about why that's important. But one thing that jumps out to me on this is Jesus quoting, saying, you would have no authority. Now, Jesus is submitting himself to this authority. But he says, you wouldn't have this if my father didn't give it to you. Now, I don't think at that point he's trying to be a smartass, right? I think what he's saying is, I take comfort in knowing that my father is sovereign. My father is in charge of all this. And so if he's allowing this to happen, and he wants me to walk through this, I'm going to do it. Because I trust in my father's heart. I trust in my father's love for me. And I trust that he's going to use this for his purposes, which are so much higher than mine. And that's what allows Jesus to walk through this, knowing, I don't think for a second Jesus walked into this enjoying what was about to happen. I don't think he enjoyed any step of the process, but he submitted himself to it willingly. And the reason he was able to do that is because in his heart he knew that his father was good and his father had his best at heart and that the, what would happen through this was so much bigger than one moment. And that's why he did it. So going back to the deliberate act, here's something that I want you to know. We all, we all struggle with sin. Okay, The devil is pursuing us 24-7. Scripture says like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I love that picture of the enemy constantly pursuing us. But here's the thing. A lot of people think or you'll hear them say, the devil made me do it, okay? Some people think when, when they look at uh, Judas betraying, they're like, oh, the, the devil just made Judas do this. That's not what Scripture says. That's not actually the truth of how sin works. The devil can lie to us. He can prompt us. He can tempt us. He can do all kinds of things, but he can't make you do something. What happens is that when we make that decision, we know this is wrong, Now we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit testifies to us what's right and what's wrong. But when we know that something's wrong and we do it anyway, that's when we open a door to the devil and we say, come on in. Come on in. Have your way with me. Have your way with my life. I'm opening the door to you. And here's what that looks like in Scripture. This is John 13, uh, John chapter 13, verse 27. Uh, This is... This is when Jesus is in the room with the uh, disciples, okay? And he knows that somebody is about to betray him. And he actually gets up and he says, hey, somebody is going to betray me, one of you. And if you've read the story, you know the disciples are all like, no, no, no way. No way is it any of us. Well, if it is, tell us who it is. And so Jesus goes, okay, it's the one to whom I dip this bread and, and I give it to them, the one who takes this bread. Okay, so he's walking around the room, and he's waiting, and, and he knows that it's Judas. The Bible says that the devil had already prompted Judas. So at that point, Judas had already laid the groundwork. He's already gone to Caiaphas. He's already been paid. He's already done all these things to set the wheels in motion of betraying Jesus. But right up until that moment, 
Jesus hands him the bread. Okay? Judas had the opportunity, I can take it or I can not take it. And here's an interesting thing about Scripture. If you read that very next verse, Judas, as we know, he, he takes the bread. But the very next verse says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Satan wasn't controlling him at this point. He was tempting him. But Judas made the decision. And that's important to know. The devil cannot make you do things, but the devil can prompt you. He can lie to you. He can make things. He can make choices and options look very, very attractive. But we still have the choice to open that door to Satan and his lies and, and, and his demons or not. That's our choice. And so that's kind of a side teaching, but I just wanted to point that out, that at that moment, um, at that moment, that deliberate act is what opened that door. So going further, moving on, John, John chapter 19, verse 17. This is a little bit later on. This is where they took Jesus. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, we'll learn in coming weeks that he actually makes it as far as the gates of the city before he just breaks down. Because he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been scourged, as it says, and and blood loss and weakness, and he only makes it that far. And at that point, someone from the crowd, Simon, we'll talk about that later, um, he comes up and he helps him carry the cross. So Jesus makes it that far, but the fact is that he accepted that cross. He could have said, if you had just been beaten and whipped, and they said, hey, we're going to take you and we're going to crucify you, here's a chunk of wood, why don't you carry it? How many of us would go, yeah, load it on there, let's go. Okay, I don't mean to make light of it, but, but the, he accepted it. Versus like, no, you carry your own cross. I can't do that. You carry it. If you're going to do this, you do it. We would have resisted in every possible way that we could. Jesus did not do that. And it's significant. The reason that he, didn't, that he did not resist is because he believed what the word said. He believed what his father said about him. Now, Jesus grew up as a Jew he was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the word. He was very, very well-versed in Scripture. Okay? The, the Old Testament Scriptures were in existence at that time. Jesus preached from them. So he would have known. For example, Scriptures like Psalm 139, 16, that says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. He knew that he had a destiny and he had a purpose that he was made for and that he was here to fulfill. He wasn't about to walk away from the destiny that he had and he trusted in the Father's heart. If this is what you have for me. The Bible, and, and he, knew, he knew, again, the, the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Bible at that time. It was, the, it was the Old Testament scriptures and they didn't call it the Old Testament at that time. It was the scriptures. But he knew them very well. And old, the Old Testament as we know it is full of references and foreshadowing of a coming Messiah. Scriptures like this, like in Exodus 12, where it talks in depth about the Passover lamb being sacrificed for our sin. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Second Chronicles talks about the temple being destroyed and then rebuilt again in three days. Okay, raised again in three days. Does that sound familiar? That's a foreshadowing of Jesus. And then Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant, the coming new covenant. In fact, there are over 350 
prophecies that specifically point to Jesus and a coming Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. 350 prophecies. All of which, by the way, that were to have taken place by now, have taken place. Mathematically, astronomical, the chances of that happening in someone who wasn't truly the Messiah. Okay, But that's another teaching for another day. In fact, all 39 books, there are 39 books in the Old Testament scriptures. All 39 books point to, in some way or another, to Jesus and a coming Messiah. So if you think the Old Testament is all just about law and just rules, and the New Testament is all about grace and love and Jesus, the entirety of the Bible, old and new, points to Jesus as our Savior and our Messiah. So don't discount anything that's in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is leaning on as he's going through this. So again, why didn't Jesus refuse? Because he knew the cross was literally his to bear. He knew that that's what he was called to do, and, that, and he knew that that was his destiny. So he accepted the cross, and he accepted what was about to happen. Again, not gladly. I don't think the word gladly ever entered into it. In fact, there are a couple times where, where Scripture records that he says, Father, is there any other way that we could do this? But the answer, as we know, is no. He had to walk this path. So Jesus knew that the cross was his. He also knew... And this is very important, that what he was going through was nothing compared to the higher purpose that God had for this. And this is something that we can apply to our days. When somebody says, why does God allow this to happen? Okay, terrible things happen around us all the time. And one of the first questions people ask is, Lord, why did you let this happen? What we have to do in cases like that is that we have to trust in God because we can't see the picture that he can see. What we have to understand is, as Jesus understood here, that the pain that he was going through at that time, no matter how intense, no matter how terrible that pain was, the Father's purpose was so much more important than that momentary pain. Our pain on this earth, in fact, our time on this earth is fleeting. It goes by in the scheme of things, in the blink of an eye. And what we go through here prepares us for what really matters. And so are you willing to set aside your need to understand why? Are you willing to, un- to set aside, in some cases, your anger against the Lord for saying, you know, saying, I don't understand why this happened. I've gone through this. The last time I went through this is when my wife was laying in the hospital room, almost had died, And she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And my thought was, Lord, we are following you, and we have given our lives to you, and we are doing everything we can to follow the path that you have for us. And this happens. Why? I'm not immune to asking why. I'm not immune to being angry at God for the things that happen. But here's what I know, as Jesus knew here, I know that his purposes are so much greater than mine, and I don't need to understand them. I know that's a hard thing as humans to set aside, is our need to understand why. And I think sometimes God will give us a little glimpse. Okay, Gabe's doing a Bible study called God Winks. He'll give you these little things to where you can see he is here. And he does love me. And he does have my best interest in heart. And that helps us to be able to set aside our fear. 
about what we're going through or what we're about to go through. But that's why Jesus could go through it. Jesus was able to submit himself to this process because he trusted the Father's love. And there's nothing like fear or the spirit of fear, to be precise, to separate us from an understanding of what the Father's love is. When we partner with that spirit of fear and we let that into our lives, meaning we have to understand like, God, I'll be, have you ever said this? I know I have. Lord, I'd be so much more at peace with this if you just show me how it works. I know your word says you've got a path for me and I know you're going to use all things for my good, but if you could just kind of show me how these things all work together for my good, I'd be so much more at peace. I've said that more times than I care to admit. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus trusted in the Father's heart. And so when you say things like, if, if I only knew, then I'd be okay with this, what you're doing is you're admitting that you have a spirit of fear. Okay? And the spirit of fear, when we do deliverance here, that is the number one biggest spirit that we fight against all the time. The enemy uses this in so many different ways. The spirit of fear of letting go. If I let go and I don't watch out for my own best interest, no one else is. If I don't fight against injustice being done to me, no one else is going to. If I don't stand up for myself and my family, no one else is going to. If Jesus had any of these thoughts, this process would not have looked like the way it did. Okay, and I don't claim to know what was going on in his head, but I do know that there's never been anyone more connected directly to the heart of the Father with an understanding of the Father's heart to where he was able to walk through this. He was able to submit himself because he knew. So here's what I want to ask you. Do you trust that God loves you? Do you trust that his purposes are so much greater than anything that you're going through right now at the moment? Anything that any friends or anybody that you know, do you trust when his word says he will use all things for the good of those who trust in him? When the word promises that he loves you, enough to give his only son for you. Do you trust him? So as we go into this time, this season, where the Lent season where we're leading up to it, here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to examine your heart. Do you fully trust in the Lord and in his promises? And if not, what's keeping you from believing what the word says? Because this, the Bible is not a whole bunch of rules. It's not a whole bunch of stuff that you have to do in order to get to heaven. Every single book, every single line in this is our Father trying to relate his heart to you, saying, I love you enough to have done all of this for you so that you could be here with me. And so that should be our response. The worship team can go ahead and start heading up here. So when you hear a message like this, it can be, it can be kind of heavy. And I know that it can. And I want to have fun and I want to be uplifting. But here's what's uplifting and encouraging about this is that you're not on your own. 
You're not on your own. You have a loving father who has orchestrated everything since the beginning of time so that he could spend eternity with you. And every time something gets in the way in the form of the enemy or our bad decisions or something else that happens, God says, okay, watch what I'm going to do with that because I'm going to take it all and I'm going to make it end up the way it needs to end up. And all we have to do is that we have to not fight against that plan. We have to accept the Lord and what he is doing for us, and we have to just understand that his heart is to love. If you filter everything that comes your way through the fact that God loves you and God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for you to be with him, if that's all you know and you filter everything that comes your way, you will walk through life with that peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the only way to have that kind of peace because if you thought that it was reliant on you and something you did and your talents and you figuring it out, you're never going to have peace. But knowing that he has already done that and that Jesus has already made the way for us, that's where the peace comes from. So we're going to move into communion right now. What a better way and a better time to just celebrate what Jesus did for us his willingness to submit himself to this on our behalf is what we should celebrate. So we have, we have self-serve at the crosses, okay, like we always do. We've got juice there and bread and crackers. You can serve yourself. Gabe and I will be up front here, uh, and we would love to serve you. We've got wine up front, and we would love to serve you communion. But let's take part of this first song, at least a couple minutes or a minute or however long it takes And let's be bold enough to seek God's heart and say, Lord, what am I elevating above you? What am I holding on to rather than letting go and just trusting in you? Maybe it's something that he wants you to set aside for the season of Lent. Maybe it's something he wants you to repent of. And maybe it's just a celebration of what Jesus did for us. But take a few moments be honest with yourself and with him and seek his heart. And Lord, what should my response be? Is it participating in Lent? Is it joining us on Ash Wednesday? If it's none of those things, then fine. But we'll never know unless we, unless we seek his heart and his direction. So let's take a moment and do that. And when you, we'll bring the lights down. And when you feel that, that you, you have heard and, you, and you've, you've honestly sought his heart, then feel free to move about and start taking communion. And then go back to your seats and just worship with us. And, the, and Pastor Jonathan will dismiss everybody when we're finished. Amen? So feel free to start moving around or to, to start praying and just see what God has for you. Thank you. You were a lover before times began. You gave your love freely withholding nothing, Jesus, my Jesus. You carry the weight of 
is extravagant it doesn't make sense we'll never comprehend the way you love us it's unthinkable only heaven knows just how far you go Oh 
time at the end of the service for you to worship and just hang out in his presence so we're going to just worship a little more but we just want to officially dismiss you feel free to grab a hold of those and continue those conversations that you started during our greeting time and uh, maybe we'll see some of you on Wednesday for our five o'clock Ash Wednesday combined service but let's uh, just continue uh, to serve Jesus as we continue out or stay whatever you guys do well, we bless you as you go